from the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack, a broadcast that celebrates the talent and diversity of the LGBTQ plus community and their allies and provides a place to showcase their remarkable voices and stories. And welcome. On this episode of Not Thinking Straight, we bring you the final episode, episode six of Coming of Age During the AIDS Crisis, a special by Eric Marcus, creator of Making Gay History. Here's a little preview. I'm Eric Marcus, and in this season of Making Gay History, I've been revisiting my past to tell you about the early years of the AIDS crisis, when I was coming out and coming of age, as people around me were getting sick and dying. I've returned to memories from the 1980s, trying to reconstruct what happened. Because it turns out it's part of our LGBTQ history, and because ultimately it's the story behind making gay history and how and why it came about. This is our sixth and final chapter Making History. Body image plays an important and destructive role at times in the LGBTQI community. In our second hour, we visit the I'm from Driftwood series where they tackle body image. In our last half hour, it's all about Barbara Streisand. We begin with a little fun with Randy Rainbow, and then we hear Barbara address UCLA students on the theme of strong women. But now, once again, we delve into the archives of the first gay television show in American history. And this one's both interesting, entertaining, and a little bit camp. You're going to meet Ed Skull Murphy, an undercover cop who spent much time at the Stonewall Inn. But he was not a foe, he was a friend. And for first-time listeners to Emerald City, please note that these tapes are nearing 40 years old, but they do stand up pretty well and well worth listening to. The Emerald City was produced by Truth, Justice and the American Way, and this collection was kept by Jean Stavis, one of the producers, and donated to the LGBT Community Centre National History Archive by him on May the 21st, 1990, and we acknowledge and thank them for taking such good care of these tapes. Now on Not Thinking Straight, it's time to enter the Emerald City. Kansas anymore. We must be over the rainbow. Tonight in Emerald City, Eddie Skull Murphy, a gay double agent, discusses his life and times in the underworld. Right off tonight, uh, we'd like to congratulate the staff at Mance Country here in New York on one of the great parties of the year. It began with the screening of a film called Getting Together, which was held recently at the newly opened 8th Street Playhouse. From there, the entire audience was transported by double-decker buses, which Mance Country actually rented for the evening from the city back to Mance Country. The party that followed was for the new Seder Gym Club on the 10th floor. It's a members-only situation, and from all outward appearances, we uh, suggest membership 
membership. One of our guests on Emerald City this evening comes to us in the wake of a controversial front page story which appeared recently in New York's Village Voice. The piece was entitled Skull Murphy, the Gay Double Agent. The story was written by Arthur Bell, and in it Mr. Bell profiles and makes public the rather dangerous escapades of one Eddie Skull Murphy. The article paints a rather colorful picture of this man who is considered by some to be a leading authority on police corruption and mafia influence in gay bars from the late 40s right through today. He was around back in the days here in New York when the gay scene was considered quite seedy. It was so underground and hidden, in fact, that it was sometimes referred to in racy novels as the twilight world of sex. This evening, Gene Stavis, who is the executive producer of this program, will be talking with Ed Murphy, who absolutely defines the expression uh, saint and sinner. Do stay with us and we'll continue from the Emerald City with Eddie Skull Murphy after this Dunk Away. Ice Palace 57, a new age in disco. Ice Palace 57, the total nocturnal experience, the best location, the brightest room, and the most beautiful people. Ice Palace 57. No membership required. Hard to believe, but true. Now is the time to visit the world's largest emporium of erotica. Come, experience New York's most extensive selection of adult magazines, films, and paperbacks. 250 Book Center and GNA Books. No matter what you're seeing, if it's the finest in visuals you're after, we've got it all. Two locations in Manhattan. 250 Book Center at 250 West 42nd Street. GNA Bookstore located at 251 West 42nd Street. Come on over. You never know who you might bump into. I'm Gene Stavis from the Emerald City, and today our special guest is Ed Murphy, who is officially chairman and founder of the Christopher Street Festival, which goes on every year during the Gay Pride Day. And he's come into the news recently because um, of an article that appeared in the Village Voice by Arthur Bell detailing some of his adventures in the uh, underworld, the netherworld of uh, the gay scene in New York. Ed's life, as a matter of fact, is sort of like a combination of the untouchables and the Jerry Lewis telethon, and uh, we're delighted to have him here, and we want to talk with him and ask him some questions about his extraordinary life and what he does now. Hi, Ed. Glad Hi. you could make it. Ed, you were born in New York, and you're a real New Yorker. You are raised on Christopher Street. You must love New York. Right. Yeah. And, and what fascinates me about you, Ed, is, is that you've really been sort of outspoken about gay things almost longer than most people have known people have been outspoken right. about that sort of thing. When did you first decide that you wanted to kind of go public with it and not be ashamed of it? And of being gay? Like, yeah. Well, <coughs> I was arrested in, uh, in 1947, and I had a lover, and uh, he stuck by me and so forth and so on. And during the, the, the uh, uh, investigation of probation department, they found out I was gay and I was living with another, another man. And the first thing the city did was, the, and the courts was stamp a big red homo right on your jacket. Hmm. And when it goes to the judge with your yellow sheet, homo. Now, I had no homosexuality convictions. I was never arrested for being a homosexual. I was never, uh, I, I don't fool around bathrooms, I, and, and you know, 
There was no, nothing in my record retaining that I was a homosexual. I was a bandit that stuck up 74 dentists in New York City, right? And, and, and there are some and, people who say that shouldn't be against the law, by the yeah, way. And and <laughs> well, that's what they're doing today. <laughs> and uh, and and uh, ran the New York police department crazy because yeah. every time we called, them, we, we we stuck one up. We used to call up to let the dentists out. You know, yeah. we always left them tied up or something. And, uh, also, Walter Winchell, the cops found out, the, the police department found out I was gay too when they were, when they were looking for us. And uh, we stuck up Walter Winchell's dentist, and in his, in his laboratory was a, uh, a, a bridge cap that fit onto Winchell's tooth. And he asked us not to take it because it belonged to Walter Winchell. Yeah. So uh, my partner says, uh, screw Winchell, he's a television lips to program. <laughs> And we took the we took the, the gold cap and threw it in a bag with the other gold. Yeah. Two Sundays later, when Winchell come on the, the radio, he says, "Attention, two thick bandits, EFM and FEM. Yeah. Two switches with dyed hairs. Whoop, stick them up." This was about three weeks before we got caught. Yeah. You know, and Ed, he was the first one. And maybe the most controversial thing about you, and the thing that that really caught the headlines in the thing was was. You're working undercover for a long time for the state uh, select committee on crime, right. in particularly in the area of New York bars and mob-controlled bars and various things. Can you tell us something about how you got into that and how you decided to do that? Well, uh, uh, I was I was uh, I was working for the federal government as an as a undercover informer. At the I started at uh, the time that the extortion ring was working in New York City. We had a big extortion ring, and I took a fall with the ring. Uh-huh. I took a fall with the ring, but it was a plant job to, to infiltrate the other the other uh, four groups that was working in the different states. Yeah. And uh, I got into the I got into the mob. I went out with them on jobs. But every move I made, the F FBI was informed, and mm -hmm. there yeah. was agents on the scene and stuff like that. Did the FBI come to you and ask you to do it? Yes. They did? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And they, what they told me with the story is because, and also, a very, very close friend was involved in this of mine. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got on his ass for, for, for being involved in it because he is gay. I said, why do you want to hurt other yeah. gay people? For? Why was he? I mean, why would someone do that? He was money in it. That's he was in money. Yeah. And did you decide to become an informer because you didn't like the idea of gay people exploiting other gay people? Well, there was one thing, but the, the people that were hurting this, there was one person commit suicide, another yeah. one lost his family, and uh, yeah. there was so much hurt and so much misery connected. When they told me the whole stories, I said, okay, I'll work for you. Yeah. And, uh, when was this? This was in the 60s, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it was yeah. 64, 65, yeah. and 66. And uh, we went from one, one state to another. Mm -hmm. And just, we knocked off 21 people. Yeah. 21 went to jail out of the whole bond. That's amazing. One of the things that people have said to me, and, and, and it's a question I want, I, I want to ask you, is that for about a year or 18 months now, sort of a lot of people have known you've been an undercover agent. I mean, you know... Yeah, well, I, my whistle how, was... How come it, it became so public? Because a, uh, uh, a person that was connected to another law enforcement agency, New York City Police Department, uh, found out through one of the officers that I worked with previously yeah. on a uh, on a murder case mm -hmm. in New York, a gay murder case. And he... And uh, either the officer let it slip or oh, whatever the story was. Uh, and this guy came to me and, and, and confronted me with it in a bar and I, I didn't know what he was talking about. Huh. What was the...
closest Chave you've had working as an undercover agent? You've been in danger, and you're in danger yeah, now. The closest I ever had uh, was uh, on the counterfeit bills of uh, and a homicide from Jersey. Uh, it was flooding the village. Yeah. And no, not only the village, it was flooding all the gay bars and gay establishments. Uh -huh. 20 and $5 bills. And uh, the main guy that was selling them was like connected in with gay people uh -huh. from Patterson, New Jersey. And uh, there was police department, people mixed in on it and so forth and so on. There was three homicides behind it. Mm. And this was the night that I was supposed to pick up the plates that the, that, that, a, that the money was made with. Yeah. There was supposed to be kidnapped the plates right and I was in my ass to, to the whole thing because yeah. I couldn't turn this way and that way I had to go through with everything Jesus now the two federal agents Secret Service agents from the federal government one of them was in with the with the gang yeah he was tipping the gang off to everything now you didn't know that no yeah. when I went to this office I missed him by 15 minutes I he would have seen who I was yeah yeah and he left, and I told me that the federal guys just left, they're going out on the plant, so forth, and so on. And they're going to stay at one end, and this and that, and I'm going into the plates. There would have been no admission. I get over to the place in Jersey, outside of Newark Airport, and I had a, uh, I had a gun strapped to, to my leg. Uh -huh. you know? And uh, I went in there, we sat down and talked with the guys. As we sat down, the phone rings, and I answered the phone, because the other two guys were figuring out some figures. See? And on the phone was the federal agent, he wants to talk to Marty. Uh -huh. You know, I said, oh, this is Marty's friend. He says, you're having a meeting. I says, yeah. He says, tell him be careful. There's a, a federal agent in there somewhere. It's an <laughs> undercover agent. I said, okay, I'll take care of everything. And I hung the goddamn phone up, right? So I said to the other guy, it's kind of hot in here. I'm going outside for air. Yeah. See, when I went outside, I, I tried to get into the guy's trunk where I knew where the plates were. But uh -huh. I, I had nothing to, what am I going to do, shoot it off? Yeah. So what I did is I let the air out of the guy's tire. Uh -huh. So I went back in and sat down. And when me and the guy left, his tire was uh, was flat. Yeah. So he had to open the trunk. Yeah, that's what. Right? So I said, all right, open the trunk. I says, and here's the thing. You start taking, I'll get your jack on, right? And I pulled the, 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 the hood of the trunk right on his head <laughs> and shot right out with the plates. That's fantastic. That's, that's the untouchables part. <laughs> Excuse me, Ed, we have to take a brief uh, intermission here. Right. We'll be back with Ed Murphy in just a moment. You're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack, and this is Emerald City, a rare insight into the archives of the 1970s of America's first gay TV show. things that, that struck me from the article and it, it, it detailed uh, uh, some of the tactics you use to deal with gay parade and people who are sort of acting up and causing trouble during the gay parade and a lot of people I guess would be kind of afraid of tactics like that you know you you don't sort of hold trials and weigh the evidence when you see something that you don't like you say hey you out and uh, a lot of people would feel kind of funny about that I would think how how does well, that no it's a, it's that's a that's a blowing up situation there. Oh yeah. If I see, for instance, like uh, like Arthur said in the parade, here comes a drunky kid with a bottle of gin swinging it, and yeah. these people are marching for their rights. Uh -huh. They're trying to give the uh, we're trying to give the public a better image of ourselves as far as uh, uh, we are concerned. Well, right. we're for this bill. This bill means everything to New York. Yeah. Believe me, I I like to say something off the record sure. anywhere you want to say. No, yeah. If this bill is not passed, right, we ought to tear New York City up. Mm. That's my tactics. Yeah. Tear it up. 
Never mind giving a hundred dollars to some uh, organization to go to, to, to Albany and fight it. It's a it's a it's a rip off. Yeah. Just show them where we're at. Like, so did the blacks, so did the Spanish, so did the gays. Mm. Well, that's a that's, that's a point of view. It's, it's not the National Gay no, Task Force point yeah, of view. Well, <laughs> we're not all soup people. Let's say. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And there's people in the National Gay Task Force that don't represent me. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. They don't represent me. No, that that was the feeling you got from Arthur's article, and it's the feeling you get from you. There's, it's a it's a whole other point of view and a whole other way of dealing with it. But and see, we have a we have a big yeah. situation here in New York City with the dykes. Yeah. You try to be nice to me, call them ladies. You're a son of a bitch, man. You got to call them a dyke. <laughs> I'm not used to calling them a dyke. I said, Madam, to once you want to hit me upside the head, man. <laughs> she says, I don't run a whorehouse. I said, I never knew how to walk away. But. Uh, they're saying they're taking over every move. When, when there's a parade, they jump in the front. When there's this, they jump in the front. Yeah. The other night, we're, we're marching for gay rights, and they're howling dyke rights. Mm -hmm. We're to eat as brothers and sisters together. We're still, we're still apart. But you work with a lot of lesbians in the right. Christmas Street Festival. I work with beautiful right. lesbians. Right. Man. Mama, yeah. I think Mama Jean is a tough, right. she's a tough piece of work. Uh -huh. But she's a real, real beautiful person. Uh, other girls from the movement, they're beautiful. They're sincere what they're doing. Their whole yeah. life is dedicated to this movement. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about is the uh, Stonewall, which is the, I suppose if there's a great moment in gay history, it's the, what they call the riot, or the, uh, at the Stonewall when the police tried to raid the place. Uh, and you were not only there, you were the night manager of the Stonewall. I was time. a door manager. A door manager. Door manager. Um, and, and I think in the article you mentioned that not only was the Stonewall raided, but it was raided the same day the cops had been paid $1,200 not to raid the place. Well, uh, they were on a study payroll, yeah. you know. And uh, that was their monthly payoff, 1200 a month. 1200 a month. Right. And uh, sh the inspector's chauffeur picked it up that afternoon at 5 o'clock. Mm -hmm. And they raided us that evening. They sent a break team in there, you know, from their own division. Yeah. A uh, policewoman and a, a colored detective. Uh, and and, and then the other white guy came in right behind him. Why uh, was this so different? Why did people resist this time? Well, the, first of all, the two cops were drunk. All right. Really? Yeah. Even the the, the the policewoman was half cocked. She was a Polynesian broad, and she's been coming as a dyke, yeah. you know. And I seen her, and I'm telling you the truth, that they will go to any extent to get a pinch. All yeah. right. She was kissing a broad at the bar, and the broad was was following her. Yeah. You know, two or three times they said because she's a very attractive girl. Yeah. And the the, the colored detective was sitting at the bar and making lewd gestures with his uh, with his hand towards his penis. Yeah. And you could see the erection shape on his pants. And a queen went to him, and all right, so-and-so, and, uh... Yeah, but this stuff had been happening before. Why was this night? Because they, they, this, the different division come in. Oh, they weren't the regular no, guys? not the regular payoff guys. Oh, a different see. division come in, see, oh, went over their head. Do you remember how it started? What was the first Yeah, thing? they got in. They got in the place. Yeah. See? They came in early and got in. Uh-huh. And uh, after they got in, then after they made the pinch, this one kid put, was panicky and pulled away from him, uh -huh. and he slapped her and kicked her, and that started the whole riot. Oh, right? uh, I see. Bottles were flying, cans were flying, you know, and the windows were being busted, and that your people just got tired of this guy, yeah. tired of being kicked in the butt, tired of being pushed around. You, you, know? think it, you think it had something to do with with the fact that the black movement was on then? And, and well, everybody was no, no, everybody was just pushed in the corner, man. Phony pitches, uh, 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 entrapments by the police department and, and the bars. Just the straw that broke the camel's I don't back. care who you are. Say you went in there. You, say you was an out-of-town straight guy. Yeah. This happened already. Believe me, I'm not lying and fabricating no way to you. Uh -huh. An out-of-town straight guy went and walked to the gay bar by mistake one time. And uh -huh. Julius's. Yeah. This is years back. 
and stood at the bar, and this guy talked to him. And he says to the guy, you want to have some fun? The guy says, well, he says, come on with me. He says, I know where you're going to have a lot of fun, man. Sex and everything. Uh -huh. The guy walked out of the bar with him. When he got outside, they threw a pair of handcuffs on the guy. Said that he cruised the detective. He made an improper advance uh, towards the police officer. Yeah. And it's a lie. The man was married with five kids. He was not gay. This man was not gay. Yeah. I know him from, you know, from another place. And I didn't know he was busted in Julius until the, he, when he called this, this lawyer in, 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 uh, in Baltimore, the lawyer says, listen, get Eddie Murphy's number, call him, he knows some lawyers in New York. Uh -huh. And then when I heard the story, I knew right away it was, it's untrue. Yeah. Another, another one on Hudson Street, the old Hudson Street bar, this happened to be the, uh, the black kid that broke the, the barrier of the ballet. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. He's a chubby chaser. He only likes big guys. Uh -huh. I know what he likes. I know the kid for years. Uh -huh. This little Irish skinny detective with a big joint cruised him at the bar, insist on driving him home. Well, so the kid says, well, I live on number one Fifth Avenue. He says, oh, there ain't no colored people live on Fifth Avenue. The kid says, well, I live, oh, I gotta see for myself. Hmm. The kid says, well, look, you're gonna drive me home, it's raining out okay. The kid got in the car and him, took him to Chelsea Station House and booked him for the same thing, improper advance. But Edith Gurley beat that case, she yeah. beat it. She, she, they put the detective on the stand and she asked him a lot of pertinent questions. Mm -hmm. And he happened to be dressed the same way he was at the bar. She asked him about his tight pants and everything. And she had a psychiatrist or somebody in the, sitting in the courtroom that she brought up as an ex-witness, and she asked questions. She says, what's your opinion of this police officer? He says he has homosexual tendencies. <laughs> and the case was thrown out. I'll do it. You've been involved with gay rights, and you've been involved with so many things in your life. You've, you've been in prison, you've been in the army, you've, you, you've, you've lived through a lot of things that most of us have you know, only just heard of a lot. Um, being gay in New York today, obviously better than it was then oh yes. what's what's the big difference what's the what's the big difference yeah. you, you, there's more freedom today there's mm -hmm. more ways of expressing it and it uh, it's not looked upon as a at, uh, like before you know before the uh you had a you had a walk a straight line in right. a lot of ways uh, and the same thing with the you take a you take a, a straight guy that was a little feminine he was always just, uh, always accused of being a fag or a queer and i know guys that weren't that weren't mm -hmm. you know they were just effeminate and they right, were, they right. were straight. So yeah, that fag, he's working here, something yeah, like that, you know. Yeah. But uh, you had to walk a straight line years ago. You couldn't be in the bars like they have today. Like Christ's sake, if we stood next to one another and I touched you on the shoulder, there was a cop there, we got busted. Hmm. We got busted, you know? Yeah. The cops used to come into the bar undercover and all kinds of get-ups and bullshit yeah. and, and, and sneak in and say, oh, they, they, they act queenish and all that to take you outside. You didn't make the offer to them. Next thing you know, you're locked up. You, you offered to go home with him for yeah. $20. And the ownership of gay businesses, is it getting away from mob-oriented things? Right. Is, it, is the tendency right. away from that? Gay bars are starting to be owned by gay people. That's terrific. That's great. Ed, I want to thank you for coming. It's been a pleasure to meet you. And I'm you're welcome. Glad you came. This is Gene Stavis. We've been talking with Ed Murphy on the Emerald City. Good night. Come to Man's Country, see what we're all about and what we have to offer. Man's Country is a full-facility, multi-leveled complex that was designed to feature something for everyone. Come to Man's Country and develop your body, or a friendship with somebody else's. Visit us once and you'll come again and again. For the best workout in town, it's Man's Country, 28 West 15th Street. Metrolines, 24-hour live answering service. Rates are from $5 monthly. Friendly, efficient Metrolines. No, I, I know we're not in Kansas.
we're looking for. Take you any place in the city we does. Well, would you take us to see the wizard? The wizard? The wizard? I can't. Where? Yes, of course. But first I'll take you to a little place where you can tidy up a bit. What? Oh, thank you so much. We've been gone such a long time. And speaking of time warps, a new version of The Matrix is coming out that features a remix of Slick's White Rabbit that is pretty special.
from the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. In this, the final chapter of coming of age during the AIDS crisis, Eric and Barry schedule their first test just as Eric starts work on his oral history book about the gay and lesbian civil rights movement. Being HIV positive back then was a virtual death sentence. The only drug on the horizon was very toxic, although it was shown to extend life somewhat for some people. This is Chapter 6, Making History. Hi, History Makers. Eric here. Thank you so much to all of you who recently donated to support Making Gay History. Because of you, we were able to meet $35,000 in challenge grants, which helped pay for the production costs of our current podcast season. And we couldn't be more grateful. Of course, as a small nonprofit, we can't rest on our fundraising laurels for long. There are future Making Gay History seasons to plan for, and your support remains vital. So please help us continue to bring LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it by donating at makinggayhistory.org support. That's makinggayhistory.org support. And thanks. I'm Eric Marcus, and in this season of Making Gay History, I've been revisiting my past to tell you about the early years of the AIDS crisis, when I was coming out and coming of age, as people around me were getting sick and dying. I've returned to memories from the 1980s, trying to reconstruct what happened, because it turns out it's part of our LGBTQ history, and because ultimately, it's the story behind Making Gay History, and how and why it came about. This is our sixth and final chapter, Making History. KABC, Talk Radio 790. This is Talk Radio. I'm Michael Jackson. I want to turn immediately to Eric Marcus, the author of The Male Couple's Guide to Living Together. We're speaking with uh, homosexual males who, uh, who are throughout 1988 i crisscrossed the country promoting the male couples guide with appearances on local tv cnn and a lot of talk radio shows where the calls range from hateful to heartfelt hi john hi yes sir uh, i was calling to tell you that we met my lover and i in 1956 we've been together since and, 32 uh, years lot, yeah we've had a lot a lot in the early 50 the late 50s early 60s and into the first part of the 70s, a lot of legal problems when it comes to buying and purchasing properties, uh, that sort of thing. And then they passed the law, you know, where singles could buy, and then we were able to buy our first property. So starting now would be a considerably easier situation for you than it was then? Yes. They, well, I don't know, with this AIDS scare, everybody's starting to, you know, to, uh, to wear the mask and uh, you know, burn the crosses again. Good morning. You're on the Talk of the Rockies with Peter Boyles. Our guest is Eric Marcus, the book, The Male Couple's Guide to Living Together. Uh, good morning, Peter. Uh, I'd just like to say uh, I'm getting tired of hearing uh, the old cop out about uh, they were born gay, and they've always been that way. I think it's just like with alcohol or drugs or any other bad habit, they've just gone ahead and got worse and worse, and they end up in a gay lifestyle. I've lived in San Francisco for three years, and uh, me and my wife and children shared a flat with five drag queens. I've been to the hardcore gay bars there. Uh, 
and they're lucky that the only disease they have is AIDS. You'll have to you'll have to give me a tour. This is Eric Marcus speaking. You'll have to give me a tour of the, the hardcore bar sometime because I haven't been. Um, first of all, uh, let me ask you a question. Okay. Um, were you born heterosexual? I would say yes. Okay. If you can be born heterosexual, could it have been possible for you to be to have been born homosexual? I don't think so. Bob, do you believe that there have always been homosexuals? Well, sure, since Sodom and Gomorrah, of course. Okay, all right. Well, uh, let's say since Sodom and Gomorrah, there's always been homosexuals. But, but why do you think that happens do you think that it's it's an act of the devil that eric marcus likes to make love to his his boyfriend i think it's because of a, a psychological uh, aberration well, actually i wish i had more time to to spend physical no. time with my boyfriend uh I, it had happened i was officially a professional homosexual i'd resisted the idea for a long time but I found I was pretty good at handling homophobic callers and prudish radio hosts. Before heading out on the book tour, I really thought I'd be out there talking about male couple life, like a gay Dr. Ruth. But the questions turned out to be much more basic. They couldn't quite get over the fact of my sexuality. Asking how I became gay, how my parents reacted, callers telling me that people like me were mentally ill or morally wrong. And of course, questions about AIDS were never very far away. Can I ask you a, a, yeah. a personal question? Go ahead. Um, Eric Marcus is a gay male. Do you ever think that the time bomb might be there? All the time. You'd have and, to. Uh, my partner and I have not been tested. We've been together five, nearly five years. Uh, because of the incubation period, mm -hmm. either of us could potentially mm -hmm. develop a disease. And I know this is away from the book, and I, I, sure. I, I don't mean to break it away from the book, but when I see the thrust in the commercials and the PSAs to test and to be safe and to find out, I have heard this, and I can't, this is empirical rather than statistical, right. that more straight people are getting tested for AIDS now than gay people. Oh, you, if I were straight, I wouldn't be afraid of being tested. That, the odds see, of, of testing yeah. positive, if I were pretty sure that I'd test negative, I'd go out and get it now. Yeah, right. Just uh, a little insurance. Peace of mind. Peace of mind. But growing up when I did in a place like New York City, the odds are probably 50-50 or better that I could test positive, and that's too, the odds aren't good enough for me to go out and get tested. Wow. Uh, it's a little too frightening. Why would you not be tested? You said neither you nor your partner would be tested. There's, that, there's a battle back and forth on that point, really and the fallout from finding out that you're positive, HIV positive, is, is so damaging so often that we decided it's easier to live with the thought in the back, backs of our minds that we are negative and practice safe sex than to live knowing that we were positive. The back and forth between me and Barry about whether to get tested came to an end in the fall of 1988. That was three years after the first HIV test became available, and within a month of the publication of a new study in Scientific American about the drug AZT. The study confirmed that AZT was extending the lives of people with AIDS by a few months. Up until that time, there had been no clinically proven treatment. I confide in my Aunt Manette and Uncle Richie that Barry and I are getting tested. If the worst comes to pass, I want time to absorb that reality before having to tell anyone else. It turns out that I also talked to my sister, Heidi. During the AIDS crisis, did you ever have a concern about me? Yeah, well, I worried. 
I really worried. And uh, I remember there was a time in particular where you were very scared. That got me worried when you worried. Uh-huh. Uh, we talked about it? Yeah, you told me you were going for a test and how worried you were. I think that someone that you were having a relationship with had tested positive. I talked more than I thought I had. Yeah, um, it yeah. was a guy. It was a guy that mom set me up with. Oh yeah, that's right. That guy Bob or something. No. Yes, yes, it was Bob. Yeah. Yeah, um, in 1981. And I don't remember his last name. I don't remember his mom's name, but his it, it, yeah. mom, our mom and his mom met. And it was two Jewish mothers who decided to set their sons up. <laughs> yeah. And then mom called me like months after Bob and I had gone on a couple of dates that that went well beyond dinner. And she asked me if I'd heard from Bob. And I said, I hadn't. And I asked her why. And she said, well, he's in the hospital with that new gay disease. Yeah. That's so that was from, yeah, so that was, so I didn't realize I told you that, that, that before I went in to get tested. Yeah, yeah, so I, like really worried, like on pins and needles. It's been seven years since I was first knowingly exposed to HIV, and I could easily have been infected by any number of other guys in the interim, including Barry, before Safer Sex was even invented. Given the often long incubation period for developing full-blown AIDS, there's every possibility that I am a ticking time bomb and just don't know it. Barry and I decide to get an anonymous test instead of going to our doctor. We don't want to risk anyone finding out. The stigma and potential discrimination associated with AIDS could mean losing your job, your insurance. I call to make an appointment for us downtown at the city's public health clinic in Chelsea. I'm number 958 and Barry is 362. November 9th, 10.30 a.m. Just a couple of weeks before, I'd signed the contract to write my second book, an oral history about the gay and lesbian civil rights movement. I've been trying really hard not to think about what testing positive could mean for that book. It's due on my editor's desk in two years. I've watched too many friends waste away and die in much less time than that. So many unfinished books, unfinished lives. Barry and I step through the door of the Chelsea Clinic into an overheated lobby waiting room that's filled with people sitting in rows of attached greenish-blue plastic chairs. The air is thick. I feel faint. We're lucky to grab a couple of empty seats and wait for our numbers to be called. An hour later, blood drawn, band-aids on arms, we're out the door with an appointment to return for our results in three weeks. Barry heads back to the office. I return to my desk at home. Time turns to sludge for the next 21 days. Slow and viscous, despite joyful distractions. Barry threw me a seemingly carefree 30th birthday party. All friends, no family. And then we spent Thanksgiving with family, no friends. Still, those three weeks felt like a year. I'm Solvay, and I worked for the Department of Health in Chelsea, New York City. My job title was counseling and testing. People would come in and get counseling and get tested. And it was also uh, taking information uh, of what their risk factor was. Um, so my day was kind of filled with giving results, which was very difficult at times. Um, God, it's so hard to go back there because you almost don't want to. You know, a lot of sobbing, a lot of crying, a lot of, a lot of hand-holding, a lot of um, especially pregnant women was really difficult. 
People needed us. They were discriminated against. Their families, you know, threw them out. They had no one but us. I came from the mindset of this is not a death sentence. I never looked at it that way. I looked at it like there are things you can do. You know, you have to now pay attention to your health, your, your uh, physical, your, your spiritual, everything, because that's all we had. We didn't have anything else. D-Day, November 30th, 1988, 9.30 a.m. Barry and I are back at the Chelsea Clinic, waiting in the greenish-blue plastic chairs. Our numbers are called, and we're met by two social workers. Barry and I couldn't, they wouldn't see us together. We wanted to be taken in together. We weren't married, we couldn't be married, so we were sent with separate people. And I was assigned to you. The petite blonde woman clutching the file containing my results was Salve. My goodness, 33 years ago. <laughs> That's all. It's like yesterday, Salve. Oh my goodness, Eric. Let me tell you, tell you the story of how it unfolded and see if you remember anything. So I remember going into your office. Um, you smiled. Um, you showed me, indicated where I should sit, and I sat mm -hmm. next to your desk. You had the file on your desk. You opened the file. And as you were doing this, it was like a movie to me because suddenly I couldn't hear anything except the blood rushing through my ears and my heart pounding and the color left the room. It was, it was, um, it was, a, it was terrifying. And you opened the file. I can see you opening the, the file. And you looked down and you smiled and you looked up at me and you said, you're negative. And I almost fainted. Um, the sound came rushing back. The color came back into the room. And I didn't cry, but I was, I was giddy. And then I thought, oh, my God, what about Barry? Because he was in another room in the building getting his test results. So I, you, you, you gave me some information about, mm -hmm. about how to stay negative. Uh, you had handed me um, a little slip of paper. Um, it said Salve. Yeah, I know. And it was written by me. It was my handwriting. So it said Salve and it had my number. Yeah. It was anonymous testing. Um, and I thanked you and you wished me well. And I left your office and went down the hall back to the lobby. And there were lots of people sitting in plastic chairs. And then there was Barry. We're standing there. We don't know what each other's results are. And we start giggling. And that's when we realized we were both yeah. negative. But then there you were over my shoulder and you said to us, come with me. From the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. And Barry said, why? And, and I said to Barry, I don't know why she wants us to go down the hallway, but whatever she wants, let's just do it. And so, so you took us down the hallway looking for an empty room. And there was none. You took us to the end of the hall. You took each of our, you took a, each of our hands and held our hands. And you said, I deliver terrible news every day, all day. And I just want to share. I just want to share in a moment of happiness with you. That's why I've remembered you all these years. That's why I saved that little slip of paper and put it with my birth certificate and my old passport because, um, because of that moment. It was so 
human of you and so um, beautiful um, and so meaningful. And I've never forgotten you. Well, thank you for sharing that. I, I don't remember that. But I am so glad that I did that. I am so grateful for all the people like yourself that I tested and, and um, that I had the opportunity to connect with. I am the lucky one because I saw people work so hard. Like if somebody was positive, like I get, like even being negative, I gave you the same information. This is what you need to do. You need to do this, this, and this. And it's about your health and it's about, you know, your well-being. You, you need to like, you know, I feel privileged that you allowed me it's such a vulnerable thing. I mean, it's intimate. It is, it is. Yeah. 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 St- standing in that hallway with you, with you holding our hands, it couldn't have been more intimate. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. and letting me into your lives, you know, giving all this information that I'm asking behind closed doors, you know, know me and, and being able to be vulnerable to, to, to tell me, yeah. to talk to me. Well, I got lucky that I got you. And I was lucky I got you. <laughs> I was just like blown away by this whole thing. <laughs> Reconnecting after more than 30 years, thanks to a social media search sparked by that slip of paper I'd saved all these years, brought even more memories flooding back. And then we stepped, went out on the street and I had told my aunt that I, that I was getting tested. And we were on the corner of 29th and 9th Avenue and there was a, a phone booth directly across the street. And I said, Barry, we need to get to that phone booth. And he stepped off the curb into traffic without seeing that there were cars coming and it was against the light. And I grabbed him and pulled him back. And I remember thinking, oh my God, we just got tested. We found out we're negative and you're going to get killed because you weren't paying attention to the light. And it's my fault because I told you we have to get to that phone booth. We get to the phone booth and I called my aunt and told her after she said, thank God, she said, have you called your grandmother? And I said, why? And she said, call your grandmother. And it turns out, I just talked to my aunt about this the other day. She said, and I'd come out to my grandmother uh, not that long before that, several months before that. She said, it's all she talked about. She was just so worried that you would get sick and die. And she'd never said anything. So the next phone call from that phone booth was to my grandmother to tell her that we were HIV negative. Every aspect of that day is seared into my memory. But for Salve... I was just one of the many people she counseled or supported over decades of work in HIV-AIDS. You saw hundreds and hundreds of people, but I wanted you to know um, how much meaning that had for me. Um, and it made me, it, I could live my life. Um, I wasn't going to die from this. And I assumed you wouldn't know who I was, but you, you um, have stayed with me all of these years. Um, I don't know, you know, like how we affect people or what... We don't ever know how fortunate I am to know that I did something that was meaningful. It was so meaningful. Um, but it's such a, it's such a vivid, um, pivotal moment in my life. And you were there, and I'm grateful to you for that. I'm so grateful. Now, I don't ever want to let you go. I want to stay <laughs> forever. <laughs> With the HIV test behind me, the terror that had been a constant hum for seven years turned down several notches, and I could turn my full attention to my oral history book. I had very grand plans for how I was going to write my book, 
I'd do 250 interviews across the country, choose the best 40 or 50, and use those oral histories to tell the story of the lesbian and gay civil rights movement from around World War II until 1990. I first had to build a timeline of the movement because none existed. That meant lots of hands-on research, poring over old magazines and the two available books on gay history. And at the same time, I had to start doing interviews because the clock was ticking. And it wasn't just my two-year deadline. There were men with AIDS and old people I wanted to interview whose time was running out. I made lists, filled out index cards, cross-referenced everything, made interview appointments, flight reservations, and arranged to sleep on friends' couches in cities across the country. I had the sense that these were important interviews, and I figured someday someone might want to use them for something. I didn't know what. So I asked my former boss at CBS for advice. He used to work for National Public Radio, and I asked what equipment his colleagues use, and then I go out and buy it. Interview with Wendell Sayers, Saturday, January 14th, 1989. Interview with Gene Manford and Morty Manford on Saturday, May 13th, 1989. Interview with Chuck Rowland, Tuesday, August 22nd, 1989. Interviewer is Eric Marcus. Location is the home of Dr. Hooker in Los Angeles, California. Tape one, side one. Very quickly, I could hear that the stories I was collecting, the lives I was recording, were precious. And even though I wasn't going to die from AIDS, I began to worry that something else would happen to me along the way and I wouldn't get to finish the book. A plane crash, car accident, a coronary. I was also afraid that something would happen to the tapes. So as soon as I got home from an interview, I'd make a duplicate and I stored the dupes in a separate secure location. And once I was well into the project, every time I set out on another trip, I'd write a letter to my editor and tell him where I was in the project so he could hire another writer if something happened to me. I put the letter and a set of diskettes with the latest files in a padded envelope and FedExed the whole thing back to New York. By then, Barry and I had moved to Barry's home state of California, to San Francisco. I did almost nothing but work, between the book and freelance writing gigs to help cover my expenses. Once I'd recorded 89 interviews, I realized that if I didn't stop and start transcribing, I wouldn't have enough time to edit the interviews and write the book. Since I had a limited budget, I did all my own transcriptions of the hundreds of hours of tape and wound up with such a bad case of tendinitis in both wrists that I had to wrap them in ace bandages every night so I could sleep. The book wasn't about the AIDS crisis, but there was no way of writing a book like this at the end of the 1980s without the epidemic's influence and consequences rising through the voices of so many of the book's subjects and onto its pages. Interview with Damien Martin... Saturday, December 11th, 1988. Interviewer is Eric Marcus. Location is the home of Damian Martin in New York City. Tape one, side one. One of the first interviews I scheduled in late 1988 was with Damian Martin, Dr. Emery Hetrick's surviving partner. Emery had died from complications of AIDS in 1987. Damian was ill. In the late 70s, Damien and Emery had co-founded a radical, groundbreaking organization called the Institute for the Protection of Lesbian and Gay Youth, an institute that continues today as HMI, the Hetrick Martin Institute. Sitting with Damien in December of 1988, I asked him what it was like to go on without his partner at his side. Three months before Emery uh, died, I was diagnosed with AIDS. And um, poor baby, I remember he was upset on a number of levels, but the major one was who's going to take care of you, you know, like you've taken care of me. And in one way, it was easy for me because he was so much sicker that my illness sort of didn't have much reality. Um, 
I think the main reason I was able to handle it was because I really thought I was going to die very soon, so it didn't matter that much. So what I did was I just got even more involved in the Institute with the idea of um, getting things ready for when I was going to leave to, uh, you know, just that there would be an organization that would be strong enough that could survive the loss of the two of us and that would go on because, uh, well, this may sound corny, I think the, the institution is much more important than any of us. And, mm-hmm. uh, plus, I also felt as though I was working with Emery. And so in a way, there it, it helped me with my grief uh, in the sense that uh, it was not like I'd lost everything. We still were working together. And... Uh, I must admit, I, I have um, difficulties. I usually just don't think about death anymore. But every once in a while, it'll come. It'll come in various ways. I'll uh, be buying a suit, and I'll think, what the hell are you buying a suit for? You'll probably be dead in six months. And I'll think, well, I'll see you'll be a well-dressed corpse, and I'll, and I'll buy the suit. Um, so the end doesn't frighten you? No. No, because you've already started. Right. Yeah. Oh, my friends, they shoulder me in my poor head of woe. They know I'm good, but I want to be bad. Standing with the lights down low and the lovers who make love, they see me smiling, but I want to be sad. Would you light me up, really set me on fire, and be there when I'm burning now? Would you hold my head neath the water tile, and elbow me if I can? by day between every crack and pain and by night it cowers and hides here it comes that awful sting when you let someone in you sit so bare in the lame leg chair Would you light me up, really set me on fire, and be there when I'm burning out? Would you hold my head neath the water tile, and elbow me if I get?
Everything in its own time Would you light me up Really set me on fire Be there when I'm burning now Would you hold my hand Need the water time Elbow me if I get too loud. Would you light me up? Really send me on fire. Be there when I'm burning out. Would you hold my head? Need the water. Not Thinking Straight, and I'm Michael Mack, and this is a story from the I'm From Driftwood podcast. Hey, this is Bill, a.k.a. Corinne. And I'm Alex Berg, and you're listening to the I'm, I'm From, from Driftwood, Driftwood podcast. Today, we are tackling the topic of body image, starting with a story from Raven. My name is Raven. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. My freshman year of high school, I went to a school that was pretty gay. So when I moved to North Carolina, I was probably one of maybe five gay kids. I remember watching The L Word on Showtime really, really late at night and just seeing these women that liked other women. And I before then I had I, I knew that I was gay, but I didn't know I didn't know that I could be confident and be gay. I remember there was an episode of the character Max and his storyline was pretty much from becoming this woman to a man. And I remember seeing him bind his breast, and I remember thinking that maybe that could be a way that I could use to help make sense of how I felt about my body. You know, so often the L word is the thing that I feel like ends up being a cultural reference for everyone around so many issues. And we know that the L word, you know, for all of the good that it did in representation, it's an extremely whitewashed, thin-centric, upper-middle-class show. And I feel like in this vein, it the representation a lot of people have in terms of understanding their masculinity, a lot of the mainstream conversation around masculinity in female-bodied individuals or folks who are assigned female at birth is this like really narrow conversation. Extremely, extremely. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on that. It, it is extremely narrow and it doesn't, it doesn't allow for different body types. It doesn't allow for different sizes of bodies. It looks like one thing. And if it falls outside of that, then there's, this, there's almost like there's no representation of that. So I'm just going through high school with this discomfort and not anybody to confide in. And I walked around with a lot of anger um, because I didn't know what to say. I didn't know who to come to. There was this one instance where in, in my senior year during the pep rally, um, my guidance counselor was like, you know, at graduation, you can't wear a hoodie and sneakers and jeans. You're gonna have to, you're gonna have to figure out something else. You're gonna have to wear a dress, be formal. You cannot come as you are. I felt like she was telling me I couldn't be myself. I felt like she was telling me to be someone else and then come to prom and graduation. And yeah, I felt like she was trying to erase me. I went outside and I cried in front of the cafeteria while everybody was at the pep rally. I remember a friend coming to check on me, but I didn't, I didn't tell her that that is why I was crying. It didn't even click to just be honest and be vulnerable. When I think back to Raven's story, what happened with the guidance counselor was very troubling. You know, and just basically say, you cannot go to graduation dressed that way. You got to put on a dress. You got to dress it up. You cannot wear this hoodie. Like, you can see that in the story, that it actually affects her in such a way, like, where she didn't even kind of mention it to her friends because it was, it impacted her to such a level that she couldn't even really open up about it. That's, to me, why this idea of representation is so huge. It's so huge. It's so big and it's so necessary. So I graduated, moved back to New York. And for a while, I felt relieved and felt like I could be myself. But again, like these insecurities were, weren't addressed. So I carried them with me to New York. So I was watching an episode of The L Word one night, and I remembered that um, this person was binding their breasts. And I'm like, oh, maybe I should try that out. I don't really like my breasts that much anyway. At first I had one ace bandage and I realized that my breasts slid out of the bottom. So I bought another one. So I would wrap pretty much like around to where I couldn't be wrapped anymore. Like just before my breasts fell out the bottom. And then I would wrap from like, I would just wrap the rest until just a little bit over my rib cage. Um, but not too, too tight, but tight enough where they were flat. I ended up going out to a club with some friends one night, and I saw somebody that I knew, and I, like, gasped from, like, excitement from seeing this person, and I collapsed in her arms, and she asked me whether or not I was okay, and I was like, I'm just happy to see you, girl. It was like I was choking, so I went to the bathroom, and I'm thinking, I'm like, you should go home. You should unwrap this and go home. So I'm on my way home and I'm cursing myself out. And I'm just like, I can't wait to get home so I can like free myself. So I get home and I'm pretty much like standing in front of the mirror, undressing 
and taking off these bandages, I'm just like looking at myself and there's prints from just the bandage and it's like under my arms, on my chest. Um, and I'm just pretty much taking it all in and coming to the realization that I could have killed myself. I was pretty much just admiring myself in the mirror and just taking in, just taking in my reflection. There was, to me, an interesting thing that was happening with her where it was like part of her after binding was like, okay, I, I bound my breasts, you know, I feel flat. Like, I'm sure that there was some comfort in, in seeing herself look like that. But there was a, I think there was a different part of her that was like, what you're doing right now may be harmful to your body. Mm-hmm. And you got to stop now and go home and unbind and really just think about what's happening here. So this is around the time where my self-care started to come into play. Um, so every day it was just like, what can we do today? We as in me, myself, and I. Um, what can we do today to like feel, com- feel comfortable in this body? I was clear that I didn't want to be a man and I was becoming more ex- accepting of myself as a woman that was masculine presenting um, with a few very, very feminine traits here and there. So I pretty much gave myself permission to like redefine my life and who I am as a masculine presenting woman that likes other women. My relationship with my body today is way more healthier. I'm not the same person that I was 10 years ago binding my breasts. I don't bind my breasts anymore because I like my body now. There's absolutely nothing wrong with like binding, binding your breast uh, or binding parts of your body. Um, but as long as you're um, doing it in the most healthiest way, my only concern is that people are finding, are finding the, the most healthiest way to do so. I have to tell you, Alex, this story spoke very, very, uh, very much to me as somebody who is born female, but identifies as they them and also as a, someone who is masculine um, of center. And I think that one of the things that kind of stood out to me in this story is that for people who are masculine of center and who are female and who may not be thin or muscular, that how do I live authentically in an identity that feels 100% right to me with the pronouns that feel right to me, but also deal with the body I have. And it's, it's, a, I, it's something I see people struggling with left and right, and I struggle with it myself. It is a very difficult thing. You know, I have to hand it to Raven because it's, it looks like, you know, she really did a lot of work with trying to figure out how do I live in this body and be okay with it. I go through it firsthand and I completely understand it. A lot of times growing up on your LGBTQ, you're taught that you're the problem and yeah. that and really it's the world not accepting you is the problem because I feel like in Raven's story, there's this real tension between seeing these images in the L word that really resonated with her and spoke to her and her relationship with her body. And then having this interaction with an adult in her life who was like so pressuring her mm. to conform in a way that is painful. And I feel like it's just this real divide between 
the messages that we're told about our bodies and our expressions and then how we really feel best as ourselves. Okay, so the next story we're talking about is Richard. And Richard, as an adolescent, gained weight. From my second grade to high school, I basically progressively became uh, not a heavy, not an obese child, but relatively heavy. My father set a great store by looks, by what one looked like, the appearance. He was, he came from a family of, of good looking folk and he, it meant a lot to him. And he wanted that for me. And being a, a slightly overweight and then more than slightly overweight as I got older uh, affected him. He got very annoyed about it. And he would taunt me um, pretty consistently. You're getting too fat. You know, what are you doing? You know, you could be attractive. Don't look like this. Why are you doing this? You know, you look awful. And um, I finally had enough um, just listening to all this and the things that I had to deal with. And so I basically, I, I starved myself. I, I did any, anything I could. I, I had a break in my head and said, that's it. I'm going to just stop this. I'm going to lose a lot of weight. And so I forced myself a big time. I did anything I could uh, between, you know, purging, you know, just not eating or eating too much and purging or whatever. But it just went down and a lot. I went from, I want to say 178 pounds to 118 pounds in roughly two to three months time. And my father was very happy about it. Um, and years later, I <clears throat> went to him. We had an argument. And I said, you know, I almost, that period was absolutely horrendous for me. I almost died. And it put the cap on it because he basically said to me, um, you know, the end justifies the means. And he was very clear about it. That it didn't matter what you went through. It, it was worth it. And that really hurt big time. But what made all this, in, to me, poignant was, you know, that was now it's 1979, turning into 1980, and I realized I was gay. You know, I came out at 20, and, you know, I decided to do something about it. I decided to uh, explore. I went to, uh, I found that my college had a gay club. It was off campus, and uh, I decided to join it. My first boyfriend had, uh, I believe, dropped me off at my house, and my father got to meet him. And that uh, precipitated him asking me, you know, are you gay? Are you gay? And, you know, when he found out I was gay, he asked me, as I say, and I said this, and he said, well, uh, why did you tell me? Why did you tell me? Well, because you asked. <laughs> you asked. And he said, well, it's not the answer I wanted. And I go, okay, well, but that's the answer you're getting. And he says, well, you know, how dare you, basically. He actually was going that route. It's like, you know, how could you hurt me like this? I want to kill myself. I, I feel like committing suicide right now, being told that you're gay. I just don't really know what precipitated his anger towards it, other than the fact that he just had an image of what I should be. And I just didn't measure up. You're listening to Not Thinking Straight, and this is a podcast from the I'm From Driftwood Project.
I think that what was interesting about the story is that with Richard's dad, you see him as not really seeing himself as separate from Richard in some ways. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It, mm-hmm. it seemed very much like the things that Richard did was such a reflection on him that there was no separation. It was as if they were one. I mean, do you, is that, did you see it that way as well? That, or? that, oh, I sure did see it that way. <laughs> and it just reminded me of, I think the experiences that I had earlier on when I was coming out with how my parents who have obviously come an extremely long way saw me as, and my queerness as a reflection of them right. and a reflection of their parenting, a reflection of their morals or a reflection of their values or a reflection of their everything. And mm-hmm. then for me, where that's also tied up in body image is I think that like as a cis femme, for me, I think I internalized also a lot of the way my own mom navigated the world in her body and her own body image. And mm-hmm. I think that's not uncommon to do, but mm-hmm. this story, it just, yeah, just everything that you're saying is, whew, I just feel like that you got the nail on the head. He passed away when I was 35. So um, it was like 15 years after the, the coming out. So I would say we were never, I would say we, we became at a better place, but it never fully resolved itself. Not completely. Um, but we did try to make peace. It wasn't all bad. He actually was a very funny man. I mean, that's where I got my really silly sense of humor from my dad, because with all the nonsense, he had a very light side. He had a very whimsical side. And I just wished he had been a little more like that with me and not all the heavy-duty stuff. Sometimes we can't understate how harmful it is, especially when the adults in our lives had a really specific idea of how we needed to conform and then impose that on us. You see this idea of someone outside of the individual affecting the individual to such a level that it's created a huge, like a rupture within that person that is really intense. So yeah, so the guidance counselor for Raven, but also Richard's dad. I was wondering if you're in your own process, because now, you know, you host another podcast about style. This is something that you think really deeply about and talk about, and you're an expert in. It's like, to me, this conversation, it's like a a graduate level conversation or something. You know what I mean? Like, I think for people who are maybe first thinking about these kinds of things, whereas like L word, maybe 101, this one is a little bit beyond that. Like, did you have an evolution in terms of the way that you were thinking about these things? I, like I, I always talk about coming out as a being like gender nonconforming and be more masculine center as a second coming out. I think that was the, the moment where I was like, oh, wait a minute. Like, I'm not done coming out. There's more coming out to do. And now it looks completely different. And now I have to really think about my body. I have to think the way I look. I have to think about what, what I feel comfortable wearing as opposed to what I'm no longer comfortable wearing. And when I started to grapple with that, I started to look around me and see a lot of other people grappling with the same exact thing. If I want to really live in my masculinity, then having curves, having breasts, you know, having a butt, having all of these parts of myself that don't really align with that become very challenging. Like we live in a culture that tells people they're not valuable if they don't have a specific kind of body or they're not thin enough or they don't conform in a certain way. And so I think that it's so difficult not to internalize some of these messages. Mm-hmm. And for queer and trans people, it's, you know, you're both navigating the pressure around being thin or losing weight, et cetera. And then you're also navigating gender identity and expression and 
the pressure to conform in those ways. So it's right. like very much these overlapping things that really interact with each other and yeah. impact each other. Like as we know, within sort of gay culture, there is this pull towards wanting to be thin and muscular and, and look a certain way. Oh yeah, I feel like that's such an important point. Like there's the way, the messages that we get from like straight people. And then there's also once you're actually out and like in LGBTQ plus spaces, people have different values around bodies. Like I feel like I've been in a lot of lesbian spaces where in my experience, it's been a little bit more accepting. But at the same time, I know a lot of queer identified women and non-binary folks who really struggled with their body image and eating disorders as an extension of a lot of the pressure they felt to be straight or yeah. to be right. feminine. You know, these things end up just connecting with each other so much. Right now, in the queer community, you're seeing a lot of queer people who are body positive, allowing for body liberation. And you hear about a lot of queer brands who are trying to cater to bigger sizes. I do think that we're doing a little better job of it in the queer community as opposed to outside. I, I think there's a little bit more focus and there's a little more freedom there. And I, I'm not sure not everyone would agree with that, but to me, that's how I feel. Yeah, I do feel like that there is more of an understanding maybe of uh, because we're dealing with issues around sexual orientation and gender identity as they relate to our bodies. You know, I feel really strongly that people should be able to have bodies however they want mm -hmm. and that whether it's your gender identity or any kind of expression or the size of your body, like I really want to live in a world where people can do whatever they want, be whatever they want, feel accepted however they want. And I think I, I agree with you in that. I, I do feel like there is more of a sense of that in the LGBTQ community, although I'm hesitant to say that, that it's that way across the board. I kind of feel like I want people to be able to have, like, I definitely, I was a competitive gymnast growing up. You get a lot of messages about the yeah. shape of your body and size of your body vis-a-vis that sport. And I, I've kind of gotten to a place where I feel like I want people to have whatever kind of relationship with their body that they want to have. Or even I've become interested in the body neutrality movement, which is like, you actually don't have to have any kind of feeling about your body, or it's okay to feel bad about your body on some days. I want to get to a place where I feel like people should be able to have whatever kind of relationship they want to their mm -hmm. own body image or whatever kind of relationship that they, that they just have, you know, mm -hmm. and that that mm -hmm. is enough for them. You know, for me, one huge turning point in my own relationship with my body image was when I started playing roller derby because it is a sport that, to go from gymnastics, which is a sport that is really almost oppressive in some of its messaging yeah. about yeah, the size absolutely. of your body and the practices around it, to go from that to a sport that is really, there is a role for every single kind of body. This extends from your sexual orientation, gender identity, to whatever the shape of your body is. It really was such a revelation in the way mm. that I thought about my body because then I was finally, it was really one of the first times where I learned that it's okay to take up space that also it really made me think about what my body did in the sport rather than what it looked like. The idea of loving your body and having a very positive body image is very tied to how you show up in the world. We think about your mind, your body, your spirit. You think about all of these various sectors, you know, what makes us individuals. And I think that it's worth taking this on because if I want to show up in the world in the best way possible, I have to be able to reconcile and resolve any sort of issues I have with myself on all of those levels. The 
Live from Driftwood podcast is hosted by Phil, a.k.a. Corinne, and Alex Berg, and is produced by Andy Egan Thorpe. It's recorded as a program of I'm from Driftwood, the LGBTQAI plus story archive. I'm from Driftwood's founder and executive director is Nathan Mansky. Its program director is Damian Middlefeld. I'm from Driftwood is a nonprofit organization, and this podcast was funded in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Additional funding is provided by TD Bank and Heritage of Pride New York. I'm from Driftwood was created to help queer and trans people learn more about their community, help straight people learn more about their neighbors, and help everyone learn more about themselves, all through the power of storytelling. Our score is provided by Elevate Audio. The stories you heard today are available in their entirety, plus thousands more at I'mFromDriftwood.org. You can also follow I'm From Driftwood on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, or subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, y'all.
Jess Cornelius and the now defunct Teeth and Tongue with Turn, Turn, Turn. From the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. And for our final half hour on Not Thinking Straight, a little bit of Randy Rainbow and a lot of Barbara Streisand. Hello, gorgeous. I'm putting out a new album. Release Me Too, available on August 6th, is a new collection of never-before-heard tracks from my vaults, and I wanted you to be the first to hear it. After Oprah Winfrey, and President Biden, and the Obamas, and Hillary Clinton, and Donna Karen, and many other people, I hope you enjoy sincerely... Barbara. I got brand new tracks from Barbara. Back a rack to Randy Newman. On this fabulous new album from my all-time favorite human, the cover alone is a dazzling sight to behold. And these shots, oh my God, I could plots from this audio gold. Well, I'm so old, cause she's the greatest star. She is by far. And look, she knows me. Jealous? I still can't believe her voice. That sparkling jewel. Barbara, can you hear me? What kind of fool? What kind of fool would dare oppose me? Please don't attempt, I'm too verklempt, cause she's my songbird, my queen. Ageless and evergreen. She's simply perfection And I think that she made this new album for me Because she sings Rainbow Connection Get it? Rainbow? She's a fan Melts my heart with every flick She's one great big stick of butter Damn Hello gorgeous She's just so glam Do you ever see a dramatic transformation in the mirror has two faces? Breaks record sales But won't break and now I'm shedding no more tears Cause she's back again Listen people Who need people Take my word This pearl was worth the wait She's well worth the wait It's not for debate No, it's not a for debate In all of the world so far yeah. She's the greatest star Who is the goddess of gaze yes. Who doesn't use both her ace Who gives us all happy Glass with her perfect tone Who changed the industry on her own Who is the wallpaper on my phone She does her own home design She got and he got times nine Hey, Mr. Brolin Get in line She's the greatest star She is by far And that is fine It's more than my heart 
for my ental Babs, don't tease me Please release me You've got nothing to be guilty of But winning my love And all of the world so far You're the greatest, greatest And I got 36 expressions Sweet as pie to tough as leather And that's six expressions more Than all them batamores put together Instead of just kicking me Why don't they give me a lift? It must be a plot Cause they're scared that I got Such a gift Well, I'm miffed Cause I'm the greatest star I am by far But no one knows it Wait, they're gonna hear a voice A silver flute They'll cheer each toot Yay, she's terrific. When I expose it, now can't you see to look at me that I'm a natural Camille? As Camille, I just feel I've so much to offer. Kid, I know I'd be divine because I'm a natural coffer. <laughs> Some ain't got it, not a lump I'm a great big clump of talent Laugh! They'll bend in half Did you ever hear the story about the traveling salesman? A thousand jokes Stick around for the jokes A thousand faces I reiterate When you're gifted Then you're gifted These are facts I got no acts to grind Hey, what are they blind In all of the world So far I'm the greatest star Who is the pip With pizzazz Who is all ginger And jazz Who is as glamorous As who's an American beauty
of Bay FM and Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. Welcome to a very special interview with a woman who some believe, I count myself among them, is the greatest star in the world. A woman so accomplished, so beloved, so legendary, she needs no introduction. Randy Rainbow and my very special guest, Barbara Streisand. Barbara, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. What an honor. Um, let's talk about your new album, Partners, which is so fantastic. Uh, why a new album? Why now, in 30 seconds or less? Um, I don't know. Well, if you had to guess, why do you think? I may be thinking about chocolate cake. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So many classic Barbara Streisand standards on this album. Why revisit your old songs? Why not just steal new ones and put your name on them? Yeah, that would be interesting. I don't know if I could do it. Beyonce does it. I actually think if you're mentally really connected to the lyric. You know, I could be singing about Samantha, my coton de tulier dog. I could be singing about my husband, my son, my, and literally chocolate cake. You know, where I'm gonna eat. When I wrote Evergreen, it was because... Could we actually switch seats? This isn't my good side. No. Okay. Now, you're singing with some of the greats on this album. Billy Joel, John Legend, Stevie Wonder. Was that really necessary? Oh, yeah, of course. Why wouldn't I want to sing with Michael Bublé? Why wouldn't I want to sing with Andrea Bocelli? I don't know who they are. I've done my research, and I know that one of your greatest passions is karaoke. And so I thought that maybe to promote your new duets album, and as kind of a treat, you and I would, would do a couple duets now. I don't go around singing, no. Here we go. It had to be you, you do the fills. Just had to be you. I wandered around, finally found somebody who, take it Barbara. Sing. No. Is enough, is enough, is enough, is enough. Yeah. There's been some confusion for you see my roommate is I don't go around singing blonde <laughs> Well, thank you so much for sitting down with me today, Barbara. It's always great to see you and let's do dinner again soon, right? It's always fun when we get together. We never ate dinner together. Thank you again to my special guest today, Barbara Streisand. What can be said of a true legend? Timeless Fearless, 
Ageless and devil. How come you hold the, the note so long? In 2019, the University of California, Anderson's Women's Business Connection, presented Barbara Streisand with the Velocity Award in recognition of her extraordinary achievements as an artist and philanthropist dedicated to raising awareness of many of the most pressing issues of our day. Here is her talk to the students, entitled A Woman with Opinions Often Gets Into Trouble. As I look out at this uh, audience, I'm happy to see that there are, my gosh, hello. Came from Florida. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm happy to see so many young faces. <clears throat> and I'm excited about your future. I'm sure you're all um, very intelligent and have powerful opinions that deserve to be heard. As for me, I was born with opinions. <laughs> and uh, when I was 25 years old and making my first film, uh, Funny Girl, I was very fortunate to work with the great director, William Wyler, and the brilliant cinematographer, Harry Stradling, who were very open to my opinions. When you're dealing with people who are inherently gifted, they're not threatened by other people's ideas because they're secure in their own. We would talk about um, the work, actually. I had played the part more than a thousand times, literally, in the theater. And every morning before a new scene, I would show Willie my folders filled with all the previous versions from the out-of-town tryouts to see if there was anything he might want to use. And Harry was pleased to talk to someone who wanted to know all about the different lenses and lighting and who appreciated his craft. I was lucky that um, these two amazing men were interested in my ideas. I mean, I was a novice, you know, in film, and some they used, some they didn't. Uh, but a woman with opinions often gets into trouble. I guess some people on the set were confused uh, perhaps jealous, because they spoke to the gossip columnists who then twisted these lovely relationships into stories about how I was telling Willie and Harry what to do. That's, that was ridiculous. Nothing could be further than from the truth. Uh, we talked incessantly because we were all committed to making the film the best it could be. And by the time the shoot was over, we were dear friends and both of these men were encouraging me to direct. Well, it took 14 years to make my first film as a director. The men who ran the studios were not really interested in a story about a 28-year-old Jewish spinster named Yentl <laughs> who had to pretend to be a man in order to get an education. So I was turned down over and over again and um, finally, I decided to turn the story into a musical 
because the only way I could get the movie financed was if I sang in it. And the same thing happened to me, actually, when I was uh, 17 years old. I couldn't get a job as an actress, so I started to sing, and that was the beginning of my career. So nothing's easy, but nothing's impossible, uh, which was, uh, that became the tagline for my movie poster of Yentl. In other words, when one door closes, another one opens. So you just have to keep going until you find the right door. Directing was actually the easy part, and I discovered something. When you have power, it's very humbling, and you have a responsibility to use it with restraint. I tried to create an atmosphere on the set where everyone would feel empowered, free to have opinions. I think people do their best work when they feel respected and know that their voices are heard. But when the movie came out, I was attacked for doing multiple jobs, writing, producing, as well as directing. For me, that was easier. There were three less people I had to argue with, you know? <laughs> And I loved having all that responsibility because it went toward fulfilling my own vision. I was passionate about that project and passion pushed me through. Ambition and um, authority are great qualities in a man, but not in a woman. I spoke about this in a speech I gave at Women in Film in 1992 when I talked about how language gives us an insight into the different ways men and women are perceived. Um, so some of my friends are here, they, they know the speech probably, but a man is commanding while a woman is demanding. He's assertive, she's aggressive. He strategizes but she manipulates. He shows leadership while she's called controlling. If a man wants to get it right, he's looked up to and respected. If a woman wants to get it right, she's difficult and egotistical. Now, 27 years later, I wonder how much has changed. I've been writing my um, autobiography for the last four years, and I've noticed that Reliving my life, actually, early on, reporters often asked if I was controlling. And I'd say, um, kind of defensively, no, 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 I'm not. But really, I am. <laughs> I am. I, I was just embarrassed to say so, you know? because I was criticized for exactly that when I produced a film called A Star Is Born in 1976. <clears throat> and my partners in the company, it was called First Artists, were Paul Newman, you know that? Oh, very good. Oh my God, really? How interesting. Wow. It was great for the artists because Paul Newman and Sidney Poitier uh, according to the contract, each artist 
had total control of their projects, which was amazing. That was fine for the men, but not for me, according to the showbiz press, you know. I was fed up with this double standard, so finally, when asked the same question in an interview I did in 1977, I said, yes, I do want control. I want to be responsible for everything I do in my life, whether it's good or bad. I especially want to control my work, whether it's designing a house or directing a movie. A male director, actually a male anything, wants to be in control of his projects. Nobody questions that. Why should it be any different for a woman? It shouldn't, is the point. On A Star Is Born, I was uh, really, you know, given that responsibility for the budget and the finished project, the, the finished product, yeah. And the artist, by the way, was responsible for every penny over the budget, meaning it was a $6 million budget. If we went over, the artist had to pay it out of his pocket. But anyway, I gave away the title of producer and took a lesser credit because I didn't want to be attacked and that was a mistake, but it was then. I often took my name off of scripts as well because I didn't want to be resented, you know, when they saw my name or, or disliked. And for those omissions, the only person I can blame is myself. We need to stop apologizing for ourselves and our opinions. So trust your instincts, find your passion, and then respect it. And also respect the truth. The truth is so powerful. I rely on it every day in my life and in my work. Here's another truth. In uh, 1916, there were 12 women directing films in Hollywood. Fast forward 100 years later, there were only four women out of the top grossing movies, a hundred top grossing movies. We have a long way to go in this business. I know you're the business school, but maybe some of you are film students too. Uh, but I think this relates to business as well. There were even fewer female directors in 2018 than in 2017. That said, we are seeing change across various fields. The um, the Me Too movement and the many um, courageous women behind it helped to bring down 200 prominent men whose predatory behavior went ignored for too long. Time's up for that kind of conduct. conduct. But there have been unintended consequences. Some male executives now say they are afraid to hire women they're spooked by the shifting environment, afraid to be alone with female colleagues, reluctant to mentor qualified young women. It's clear that women can be threatening to men on several levels. If she's too smart, she challenges his brain. If uh, she's too attractive, it challenges his libido. Business and personal relationships are complicated. Uh, and, and new conversations must occur between men and women. 
For a start, we should see ourselves equally powerful, as equally powerful. Men must talk to women as peers. And things are beginning to change in politics as well. In 1987, there were only 25 women in the Senate and the House, and today there are over 100. During the midterms, my friend Nancy Pelosi was demonized, but as she has shown, you don't give up. It's what you do with your voice and your opinions that matters. I'm gratified that more and more women are rooting for each other's success these days. Thinking of themselves as part of a sisterhood and recognizing our common goals. We're much more powerful when we stick together and support each other. The world needs more women in positions of power. Women are nurturers and uh, just by our physiology. We come from the heart and our instinct for love and compassion is something that this chaotic world needs now more than ever. Women have a, a unique vision of our future and we need it not just in business but also for the sake of the planet and our health. My last point, I'm very excited and I'm very involved about uh, the fight against women's heart disease. I have a center at Cedars-Sinai and one here at UCLA where we're committed to gender equality in the treatment and research of heart disease which kills more women than all cancers combined. For the last 50 years, most research was conducted on men. Male patients, male mice, male monkeys, male cells. It's, it's kind of outrageous that women are still discriminated against, even in medical research. So where do we go from here? Um, the hill is steeper for us than it is for men. It's even steeper for women of color. The challenges are real, and so are the barriers. We can't control the external obstacles, but we can control our own achievements and preserve our own dignity. So don't wait decades to believe in yourself. Don't be afraid to use your voice and ask for what you want and question those who say no. Be bold. Don't be afraid to express your opinions and don't be afraid of being afraid because it's natural. I often experience it myself. But always keep your mind open. Be generous of heart and spirit. And don't apologize for any of it. So, good luck, have fun, and thank you for this wonderful award. From the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you've been listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. 
Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, goodbye. Well, you can twist and shout. Let it all hang out. But you won't fool the children of the revolution. Now you won't fool the children of the revolution. Falling rain I drive a Rolls Royce Cause it's good for my voice But you won't